Welcome to Boston Confidential, Beantown's true crime podcast. Boston is a great city, but there's more to it than the Freedom Trail and Fenway Park. There's a startling underbelly to the city, and Boston Confidential will take you on a guided tour of the hub of the universe, Boston, Massachusetts. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Boston Confidential. My name's Barry McGuire, and I'm your host. I'm a 20-year private investigator on the streets of Boston and I help run a company called Impact Due Diligence Investigations. If you need anything in terms of investigative services, feel free to contact me at Impact. If I can't help you personally, I'll certainly direct you to the right person or agency. Hey guys, welcome back to Boston Confidential. Just a bit of housekeeping stuff. We did an episode on Dr. Richard Sharp last week. I just wanted to touch base. I'm getting a lot of positive feedback on it. And it seems to do with the fact that most people didn't know that Richard Sharp had been severely abused as a kid. And as typically happens, stereotypically actually, the abused becomes the abuser. Richard was turned into a monster, I believe. And that time he suffered that abuse, gave him some mental illnesses, and that was all exacerbated by his pill usage and his alcohol usage. And he might have just been a run-of-the-mill ass otherwise, but I do believe his abuse caused him to be what he is. It certainly doesn't excuse what he did on any level. All right, guys, we're on to our episode for this week. This week's episode centers around Jennifer Fay of Brockton, and she disappeared in 1989, and she was 16 years old. And this case is just such a heartbreaker for everyone involved. Just to look at how this case was handled has to give you pause. All right, guys, I want to tell you about Jennifer Fay, beautiful 16-year-old girl out of Brockton, Massachusetts. But let me start with what Brockton, Massachusetts is actually like before we get to Jennifer. Brockton has always been described as a hard scrabble city. I think I'd go a little further than that now. Brockton is a tough city with a lot of problems. It's located just south of Boston, about 35 miles south of Boston, I wish I could say Brockton had seen better days, but I don't remember them, quite frankly. And in 1989, I believe it was much like it is today. Brockton has a very high crime rate, high drug rate, and a high murder rate for a city that size. There's a lot of people in need in Brockton, and it's it needs a lot of assistance. The section of Brockton the Fays lived in wasn't the worst section of Brockton, It wasn't like you were going to leave your house and be immediately set upon by robbers. There was just a lot of drugs and crime in general in the area, but there was also a neighborhood cohesiveness to Brockton, or at least that section of Brockton. When I say everybody knew everybody, they knew everybody and they knew their lifestyles and all that. So that's the picture of Brockton. But let me tell you a little bit about Jennifer. Jennifer was a beautiful, blonde-haired, 16-year-old girl she was a tiny girl, about five foot four and a hundred pounds. But when I see pictures of her online and there's a video of her goofing around online, she doesn't look to be near a hundred pounds, but maybe as she grew a little bit older. But she was a beautiful girl, funny, vivacious. And from what I've seen online, she liked to have a good time. And it was, you know, at the end of the 80s, she had big hair. All the girls were going for that. So they'd use a ton of Aquanet so their hair would stand up to about six or eight inches. So that was crazy, but she had a little bit of that. So she seemed like a great kid. 
So Jennifer, although, you know, living in a, this hard scrabble Brockton, she grew up with an intact family. Mom was married. I just don't see any indication of a name in any of the media that I've come across for the husband or the stepfather. I've heard the father described as stepdad and dad. So regardless, this was an intact family. So the family consisted of Dottie McLean, the mother, and the stepdad, who I'm ashamed to say I don't know his name, a sister, Yvette. Yvette was 12 years old, so she was younger than Jennifer. And they had a little brother, Jimmy, who was age four. All right, let's fast forward to November 14th, 1989. This is the last time that Jennifer was seen. And the day started out like this. Mom was making plans to go out for the evening. And she asked Jennifer to babysit. Jennifer, being 16, initially accepts, but then remembers that there's a party she wants to attend in the neighborhood. So she doesn't leave the kids high and dry. She calls a cousin named Tammy Young, I believe is the name. Tammy came over and babysat the kids, and Jennifer eventually went out to the party. So this next part of the story, I think I feel like I need to clarify, because everything that's in the media is relatively accurate, but there was actually two parties on that day, both parties were right in the same neighborhood, right in Jennifer's neighborhood. One was on Broad Street, and I believe that was a second party she attended to, but the other one was right in the same area as well. So Jennifer goes off to the first party, and she comes back around 10, 10, 15. That's at least according to her sister. She comes back, and she wants to get a jacket. She has a boy with her. I believe the boy was known to the Faye family and he was known in the area. So there was nothing suspicious about that. So Jennifer comes back and gets a jacket, a Iron Maiden jacket, and she's going to go hit this other party. The second party was at Broad Place. So when she returned to get her jacket, she spoke with her sister, Yvette. Her name's Yvette Auburn now, but I've seen an interview where Yvette tells the story where she just had this sense of foreboding and she didn't want Jennifer to leave. She was basically hanging on to her, begging her not to leave. But you know how teenagers are. She just shrugged it off and went out the door, just like a normal night, right? Jennifer and her unnamed male companion, at some point, I, I believe just after they left Jennifer's house, they went to a convenience store, liquor store, to buy more alcohol for this party. I know Jennifer was only 16. I, I don't think there was a crap ton of supervision in this neighborhood. And I believe Jennifer had been drinking at the first party, then comes back to get her jacket. So I think everybody knows, you know, alcohol is basically allowed within these families. So it's a little crazy, I know. So Jennifer and her friend are at the convenience liquor store, and it's said that her companion gets sick. I don't know if he just threw up in terms of being sick or he just didn't feel well. I kind of get the impression that he threw up and walked on his way. He went home. He was drunk from that first party. But Jennifer, at a certain point, goes to a girlfriend's house. And I think this is before the friend, the male friend, had departed. And she called for a friend to come to this party with them. And this friend's mom states that she wouldn't let Jennifer Fay and her friend in the house because they reeked of alcohol. But in the interview I watched with Yvette Auburn, the sister, 
Jennifer's sister, she doesn't believe that because she knows this woman and, you know, alcohol was kind of the scene and she wouldn't have been kicked out or excluded for alcohol. And the vet's pretty adamant about that. But either way, the girlfriend doesn't come out with them. And Jennifer and the guy friend split at the liquor store and it's believed Jennifer headed on to the party by herself. So I don't know how long that all takes, but according to Yvette Auburn, Jennifer's sister, this was about 10, 15, 10, 30-ish. So I don't know, like, where does that take us up in the timeline? But the next time she was seen, she was talking to somebody who was sitting in a relatively new brown truck right on Broad Place, which is where this party was. The only real description I've heard of this guy is he was an older male, but older in terms of what and whom, right? Because Jennifer's only 16, so that leaves almost everybody in the population as to older than her. But that's kind of where this story stops dead in its tracks. This is the last time Jennifer is seen alive, and it's kind of haunting, really. All the information stops at that point. What I believe in this case is that person she was talking to, he is known to law enforcement. He is known to the private investigation team that's handling this case. And I'll tell you a little bit more about the vehicle itself in just a minute. What I want to get to is the police response in this case. So Jennifer doesn't come home on the 14th. And on the 15th, the family reports are missing to the Brockton Police Department. And their response was horrible and it would only get worse. So they told the Faye family that Jennifer had likely ran away and that was the response back then. She was 16, almost coming into adulthood, and they had known she had been drinking. That's the story. They told the police the truth, and they thought that Jennifer would turn up very shortly, hung over somewhere, and she'd come home. Jennifer's mom, Dottie, was hoping that was the case, and she wanted to believe it, but something deep down in her soul told her that was not the case, and it was not going to be the case. In Yvette's interview, she remembers the police telling the family within a few days when Jennifer didn't return home and now they were treating it as a missing persons case that not to touch anything in Jennifer's room because they were going to come by with forensics and a dog. And Yvette said at least a week and a half went by and nobody came to the house at all, ever. They still hadn't been there. They did no investigation whatsoever at the house. One of the reasons that the police went with the runaway theory was the fact that I believe Jennifer had been reported to the police as a runaway before. But Yvette says that's overstated. She says, yeah, she's a teenager, she'd have fights, but she'd go to other relatives' house. Everybody always knew where Jennifer was and with all the kids. So Yvette thinks that end of it, the runaway thing was overplayed, but at a certain point, they may have contacted the Brockton Police Department to have found Jennifer previously, and that was in their records. And I believe they treated this as a runaway because, you know, she had done it before, and that cost them valuable time. But the fact that they never came to the house to investigate or conduct a forensic examination of the bedroom, the house, anything, man, that's, that's just bad police work. Imagine if they could have got on to that suspect who was talking to Jennifer in the car. He's the last person to see her alive. This suspect has never been named. I believe it's known to the family. 
and it's known to the investigative staff, the private investigators, but it's never been released. What does that serve? You know, not releasing, he has to be a suspect. He's the last person who saw her alive. And if he isn't a suspect, the police can say that. But this whole thing of keeping everything so tight-lipped in these cold cases, Teresa Corley, Molly Bish, Holly Peranian, they keep such a tight lip on this information that it gives the public no avenue to pursue. If they want to assist, there's, there's digital detectives out there and they help solve cases. They can be a pain in the ass to the police, I get it. But what do you have now? You have a 30, 40-year-old unsolved homicide and you don't want to give out a tidbit of information? You don't want to give out the name of the last person to see Jennifer Faye alive? What good does that do to anybody? You know, that thought process kind of reminds me of what they did do in the 80s, right? Where we wouldn't start looking for anybody for 24 hours or 48 hours after they went missing. And the police got rid of that because it's just stupid. And that's what needs to happen with keeping a lid on all this case information on these cold cases. Your case is still cold and it's getting colder every day. Release something new. Use the media. There's got to be a change in policing with these cold cases. It's just not working. And you do see cases solved all the time with new DNA and all that, talking about the thought process on the case. We got rid of the idea of waiting a certain amount of time to go start looking for someone who may have been abducted. We need to get rid of how we handle cold cases. It's not working. So after the Brockton police get off their ass basically and start looking for Jennifer. A lot of this stuff has went cold and I don't know who developed the information on the guy with the car, but I believe that was relatively new information. And the police have kept a tight lip on this case like you wouldn't believe. And I think the family knows more than, you know, what the public does and, and that's rightfully so. From what I've read, the working police theory is that she was abducted by somebody she knew and killed shortly thereafter, but that's about all they'll give you. That's all I can pick up online anyway. In 2003, I believe it was, there was a tip that came into the Brockton police that Jennifer was in a truck or somewhere near a truck, but in the water at a pond in Brockton that was about a mile from her house. They searched that extensively and came up without a body, so Jennifer is still missing to this day. So I wanted to get back to this brown pickup truck. It was described as being two or three years old, which is still pretty new, kind of a new vehicle for that area, and that would stand out. And after this happened, the vehicle disappears. It's never re-registered. It's never destroyed. It just disappears off the face of the earth. So somebody buried it, somebody crushed it, but it's never been re-registered. Since Jennifer disappeared, it's like that car has vanished off the face of the earth, and it has. It hasn't been stolen, it hasn't been sold, and it hasn't been destroyed, at least on paper anywhere. So that would lead you to think that this guy is suspect number one, whoever owns that vehicle, right? Releasing the owner of that vehicle's name may provide some pressure on this case. There hasn't been any to date. I don't know what the hell they're doing on it, but... It doesn't seem like much. Nothing's coming to fruition, that's for sure. Give us that guy's name. It's 32 years old. If you think he was, you know, even 20 at that, he'll be in his 50s now. He doesn't have much time left. So in the interview I watched with Yvette, 
she goes on to say that what she thinks happened was Jennifer had witnessed something she wasn't, and she was murdered as a result of it. But that's pure speculation on her part. She's heard different stories, rumors, and all that, and she's been hearing them for more than 20 years. I don't know if that's true where she just witnessed something. I believe that guy in the pickup truck may have had dastardly intentions, and that should be the focus of this case. And I believe in 2013, the private investigation group that was formed in an effort to help the Faye family develop some new case information, what I think they were doing, they really had just put all of this together, you know, like a timeline, a suspect line and all that. And they were getting some tips at the same time and, and some new stuff came in. They said at least four people, four more people of various ages, and this was in 2013, have come forward to provide information. One of the PIs goes on to say, I firmly believe that Jennifer did not leave the city and that her remains will ultimately be found in the city of Brockton in the near future. And I remember hearing this at the time, thinking there'd be an end to this case. The problem was the information that I dug up on exactly what the PIs found was limited because they've got to hand it over to the district attorney's office and the Brockton police so they can't talk too much about it. So this was 2013, and nothing since then. I haven't heard anything since then on that new information, the new tips that came in. So it was kind of some false hope there, I think. But I think the PIs assisting in this case have done nothing but move it forward, and I hope they're continuing to work together. But the PIs on this have done a better job than the police department, I have to say that. And the PIs in this case are working pro bono. That means for free. They're members of the Massachusetts Private Investigators Association. So kudos to them. They logged a ton of hours on this case, and they still are. I think they work it every week. So the factual case information on this does seem to stop with Jennifer bending over and talking into the window of this brown pickup truck. It seems to stop there. If there is more information, release it. But that seems to be where we are, where we still are today. If the Brockton police had listened to Dottie McLean from Jump Street, I think it would be a different outcome today. They were so hampered by that late start, treating this as a runaway case because Jennifer went away previously to stay with her aunt or her uncle, whatever. So I believe the biggest key is that vehicle, the owner of that brown truck, but also there's Jennifer's friends. They were with her at both of these parties. And Jennifer's sister, Yvette, and her mom, Dottie, believe that these people who are at the party know more than they're giving up. They were very evasive after this. They didn't come by the house. They were supposed to be Jennifer's great friends, and they knew what happened to her, and they haven't said anything. And I can't imagine that. It's been said that there was a drug ring involved here and that's the silence and all that. But when something like this happens, somebody's been killed. People are afraid. And I understand that when you're 16 and 17. But when you're 36 and 46 and you have your own kids and you're still holding on to information, when you're an adult now and you know you could give this information confidentially, I kind of read between the lines of that last report of the private investigators and they seem to think that those people who knew more back then were giving these new tips. And I think that's great. I just, it seems to have stopped dead in its tracks since 2013. 
this case has turned into a real whodunit. And I would just wonder if they got on to actually looking for Jennifer, you know, before the 48 hours or whatever, would we have a different outcome here? And I think we would have. This is going to be a difficult case to solve. There's no forensic evidence. There's no DNA. It would be strictly a circumstantial case coming forward unless there's a confession. I wonder if that brown truck was around the neighborhood the day after or in the days after that Jennifer went missing. It's hard to find people to who remember that level of detail, but the PIs on this case did such a good job. They may have it in one of their reports already. So I think if this case is going to be solved, it'll be through the private investigation team. All right, guys, I think that's about all I have for you. I'm sorry it's such a short episode. There's so little case available, at least in the public domain. But if you have any information on this case, call the Brockton Police Department at 508-897-5333. There's also a Facebook page entitled Jennifer Lynn Fay. I implore you, if you have any information on this case, give it to the BPD, 508-897-5333. Don't forget, you can remain anonymous you can do a lot of things anonymously now. It's a 21st century. So go check out the Facebook page for Jennifer. It provides kind of a good insight as to the kid she was. She had that big hair and all of her friends are in the pictures. It's like a time capsule, really. But I think that's all I have for you now, guys. I'm going to get on to the next one. So I'll see you on the flip side.